We're beginning here on the bottom of Lamed Amud Bet by the two dots. Tan Rabbanan, Lo Lam Yehadam Anvatan, Kehilel, a person should be gentle, humble, have humility like that of Hillel. Ayekabdan Kishamai, they should not be impatient, harsh, or particular like Shamai. Here we're speaking about one of the pairs that's mentioned in the Mishnayot in Abot. Hillel and Shamai were the Nasi and the Av Beitin, and they had different approaches to Torah. Many of the Bali Musar point out that in the Mishnah Tedvav in Perak Aleph of Avot, it says there with regards to Shemai, Asay Torah Chakeva, Emor Ma'at Vaser Bey, Avei Mekabel Et Gol Adam B'Sever Panim Yafot. That Shemai's approach to individuals, as Ben Adam Nechaberu, was something that focused on treating people properly, greeting them in a nice way, and so that's not really reflective of what we're seeing here in the Gemara. And therefore, the Bali Musar say that they're approaches over here were a differentiated approach towards Kavod Torah. That with regards to interpersonal relationships that both Hillel and Shammai were makpid on Ben Adam Lechaveiro, and Shammai was just as makpid or just as careful and stringent in those areas as Hillel. Their difference came with their approach to Torah and Kavod Torah. What's the right approach? Is the right approach to subvert Kavod Torah some instances in order then to bring people closer, draw them closer, have them be loved, and therefore successfully draw them into Torah? Or do we have to take a hard line with regards to Kavod Torah and that people can't abrogate the Kavod Torah because it stands in a different plane and you can't let people just walk all over it or disparage the Torah in any way, which would be the view of Shammai. And we'll see in the upcoming stories that the Gemara is going to bring that all the examples really revolve around this idea of having proper Kavodah Torah and understanding that there is a difference between just mundane matters and issues that deal with the Torah. You have two individuals who were quarreling, fighting, or betting one another. Rashi brings from Sanhedrin, which is which is they had pigeon races, they had dove races, and Tosavot speaks of an asmachto, which is a problem of Kinyan, when it comes to betting on winning. So over here, they were betting each other. Whoever successfully upsets Hillel will then get 400 zoos from the other individual. I will successfully cause him to get angry. I will make him lose his patience and his demeanor. It was an Erev Shabbat. And Hillel was shampooing his head. He was getting ready for Shabbat. He walked by the entrance to the house of Hillel. Amar, Mikan Hillel, Mikan Hillel. Is there a Hillel that's found here? Is there a Hillel that's found here? Nitatef Krato. Hillel gets dressed and goes out to greet this individual. Now, as the Marsha points out, each one of these items in themselves was enough that it should have angered Hillel because of the disrespect this individual was showing. First of all, he's coming on Erev Shabbat, the busiest day, and then he catches Hillel in the middle of his shampooing, getting ready for Shabbat uh, once a week, that he shampooed his hair, washed his hair, and he caught him in the middle of that. And in addition to that, he's walking outside his house, doesn't even knock on the door, walks outside, and then calls out, asking for Hillel, as if he's some regular individual, not the Nasi. And despite all of that, Hillel is not instigated to react inappropriately. And he comes up and he says, What is your question? I have the following question. Please go ahead, ask me the question. Why is it that the heads of the Babylonians are Sigalgalot? Rashi brings two interpretations over here. One interpretation is from the word Galgal, that they are circular or round. Why are their heads round? The other possibility, Rashi says, is that they are not round. And he uses the word biluna, maybe from the word balloon. It's something that was maybe elliptical in shape, but they had odd-shaped head. Either way, whether it's very round or elliptical or oval in shape, why is it that they have that type of shape to their heads? Amalei bini, sheila gedola shalta. He asked a very good question. Because they don't have great midwives that give birth to the children properly, and therefore they don't bring the children out in a way that their heads don't get misshaped from their birth. He waits another hour. Does the same act again outside of Hillel's house and says, is there Hillel here or Hillel here? Once again, Hillel gets dressed, goes out to greet him. My young man, what is it that you're looking for? I have a question. Go ahead, my son, ask your question. 
Shrutot. Why is it that the eyes of the Tarmudian, which are people from an area called Palmyra, which is out in the desert, why are their eyes Shrutot? Rashi brings two possibilities. One possibility is that they were very teary-eyed, or that they were very round, they had odd-shaped eyes. You asked a really great question. Because they live by the sand. And so in order to protect their eyes, they either, as Rashi says over here, they were very round and not long and slitted like ours to not allow the sand to go in. Or they were teary-eyed because the sand got into their eyes all the time. Again, he waits another hour. Chazar v'amar, mikan hilel, mikan hilel, comes back again and says, is hilel here, or is there a hilel here? Nittatefi atzah, likrato, hilel gets dressed again, goes out to greet him. Amalei b'ni, ma'atam ebakesh. A young man, what is it that you have to ask? Amalei she'elai yeshudishol, I have a question for you. Amalei she'al b'ni she'al, go ahead, ask me the question. Ipnei ragmar ragleem shel afrikim rechavot. Why is it that the feet of the Africans, probably something south of Egypt in the Sudanese area, why is it that their feet are very wide? Amalei b'ni, she'la g'dola, she'alta. He asked a really good question. Mipnei shedarim ben b'tzei ha'mayim. They live along amongst the marshes or the muddy areas. Rashi over here notes that the widening of the foot could be for one of two reasons. It could be either that that was genetic in nature. They had wider feet. And the reason they had wider feet is because that made them more adaptable to the environment that they were in, which is that they had these marshy, watery areas. And similar to the ducks that have webbed feet, the wider feet allowed them to walk on these muddy or marshy areas. Orashi says the other possibility is that it was not genetic, it was not the nature of the individual, but rather the nurture, which growing up in these areas, the individuals walked barefoot. They did not put on shoes. The shoes hold the structure of the foot together and stop it from expanding and callousing on the bottom. The other hand, people walk barefoot, develop wider and more calloused feet, and that was adaptive to their situation because of the bitzei hamayim. Rashi says it could be either nurture or nature, but one of those two things contributed them to having wider feet because of the environment in which they live. And that would be similar, as Rashi says, to the situation with the eyes that were adapted for the sand, but doesn't fit so well into the first question about the rounded heads of the Babliim. That's why the Marshad and reads them in a much more figurative sense as representing ideas or concepts of the Torah. So this individual asks three questions over here, and then he continues, He says, I have many more questions to ask, but I'm a little afraid that you might get angry. He'll get stressed or puts his a tunic on, or his turban on, sits down in front of them, I got all the time in the world for you, ask me whatever questions you'd like. Are you Hillel, who is the great prince, the leader of Kalal Yisrael, in Eretz Yisrael at the time? He says, yes, I am. That's you? Then there shouldn't be many more like you. He says, young man, why would you say such a thing? Because I lost now 400 zuz over a bet because of you. He says, be careful with your demeanor or that which you say. Hillel is worthwhile to learn who's over him. 400 zuz. The Dalmiel zuz and another 400 zuz, the way the Marshal explains it over here, is that he lost the money that he thought he was going to win, plus now he has to pay out to the other individual. So he lost 400 he thought he was going to get, plus now he's in a deficit, he has to pay out 400 zuz. And I shouldn't lose my cool, I should not lose my demeanor. And Hillel says that it's so important that I act in a humble and patient manner that it's better that you lose all this money than I lose my cool. Now, there are a number of things to speak about in this context, the first of which is this Gemara seems to be soter, that which we learned in the previous Gemara. The Gemara before brought a stira from Mishlei, which says, Altan ksil ki valto. And then we have the puzzle that says, Anek ksil ki valto. And the Gemara reconciled that by saying that, with Torah, Alma. By Torah, you answer the ksil like his folly, the fool like his folly. And those were the stories we had at the end of yesterday's dop with Rabban Gamliel. On the other hand, when it says, Altan ksil ki valto, you don't answer the fool like his folly. That's Bidivre Alma. This, our situation over here 
is a situation where we're dealing with mundane matters. And so why is Hillel answering the fool with his folly? Why is he giving him the time of day with regards to answering these questions? So the Masha over here, it suggests that Hillel biderch anvantunuto, since he was so humble and he was so unassuming, he believed that this individual was asking something of significance. The way the Marshaw says it is that he thought he was asking him Torah questions veiled in a mashal. And he claims that these are connected to the three bad midot of Bilam Rasha, and that is Ruach Givoah, which is represented by the question about the heads, Ayin Ra'ah, which is the question about the eyes, and Nefesh Rechava, which is the question about the feet. And the Marsha goes on to explain how each one of these and these particular areas or people had these midot or these bad midot. And therefore, Hillel makes the assumption that this individual is asking something of significance or of importance. The Svatamed, on the other hand, takes more of like a Rambam approach and says that Hillel was complimenting his observatory skills because observations in nature, like the Rambam says, brings a person to a deeper understanding of the differences and the amazing creations that Hashem has. And that brings him to Abat Hashem. And so therefore, this person who was observing these differences was noticing these great things that a Kodesh Baruch Hu does, and it would bring him closer to God by observing these items. That's why Hillel was willing to respond to the individual. The other hand, you could explain, and this might be also the explanation of why Hillel says back to the individual, She'ila gudola shalta. This person asks a foolish question, and Hillel responds and says, you asked a really great question. So why does Hillel compliment the question? Now, if you think like the Marsha, that he's asking something in a veiled reference to something of a Torahic nature, then you understand, She'ila gudola shalta. These are significant questions. These are really good questions that you're answering, and maybe it's truthful that he's saying that. The other possibility is that Hillel realizes that if he does not encourage the individual, even when they ask mundane or silly questions, to come and ask questions, then when they really have important issues or real halachic issues, they're not going to come and ask. So he encourages the individual to ask in order to facilitate that they will then come in situations where they really need to come and questions that they really need to ask. And therefore he's willing to put up with these questions in order to have them come when it's really important or necessary. And again, that could be the explanation over here as to why he answers the questions, even though maybe they're not relevant questions, is because he wants to encourage the individual to continue asking those questions. The amazing thing is that the tremendous demeanor of Hillel, which is brought to the forefront over here, he's in Nasib Israel, an Arab Shabbat, getting ready for Shabbat. He has more than enough on his plate to deal with, and yet he's willing to go out time after time to deal with this individual, and he saw it as being so important that he was the representative of Torah to be soft-spoken and to be considerate of these individuals so that they couldn't upset him, that that was such a primary part of his representation as a persona of Torah that it meant so much to him to do that, even though it was a burden on him, and I'm sure it was not easy for him to do that in these situations. Let's not assume that this was his natural demeanor. He worked hard at this. He made the effort to go ahead and do this. Now, the Gemara continues with other stories that really highlight the difference between Hillel and Shammai, as opposed to the first story, which was really focused on the tremendous humility and patience of Hillel. There was this non-Jew, Shammai, that presented themselves before Shammai. How many Torahs do you have? You have the written law and the oral law. I believe you that there is a Torah Shbichtav. I don't believe that there is a Torah Shbichtav. Convert me so that I learn the Torah Shbichtav. Shammai got angry at him. And he sent him out with a chastisement and dismissed him out of hand. Rashi quotes over here that he was right in doing this because we have a brighter. That person who comes to me, he wants to be in the classification of a chaver, which has certain requirements with regards to tarah, shumot, and masrot. And similarly, a ger that comes to convert, who says, I'll accept everything in the Torah, except for one thing, even if that one thing is a small dinder abonon, we don't accept him. And so Shammai, keeping to the letter of the law, says that this individual comes and rejects Torah Shabbat there's no reason to convert him. Balifne hilal, gayere. Came before Hillel, and Hillel converted him. On the first day, he teaches him the Aleph Bet, starting from Aleph Bet to Gimel Dalet. The Machachar Apichle. The next day, he goes backwards, the way Rashi says it, he starts from the 
end of the alphabet and says that's the beginning of the alphabet. Wait a minute, didn't you just tell me yesterday the opposite way? Aren't you relying on me? So you can see now that I, you're relying on me and I can teach you one way this day and then one day the next day. So if you're really going to rely on me, then you should rely on me with regards to Torah that is also and therefore it makes sense for you to keep both Torah and Torah and the individual accepts that suggestion of Hillel. Rashi over here says, how is it possible that Hillel could convert such an individual? Shammai was right in the letter of the law. That's what said. Rashi writes over here, This situation over here is different than a person who converts with the exception of one item. He did not deny he just believed that it wasn't from Sinai. He believed it was a Torah There's a Torah Shavuot, but the Torah Shavuot was not from Sinai. But that might have been out of ignorance. It wasn't something that he definitively said, I'm not going to accept. Hillel had the foresight to see that if he taught him this information, that he would successfully bring him around to believing in the Torah Shavuot. The Marshah is bothered enough by this to say, how could Hillel convert him in this situation? And he says in this situation, the subsequent stories where Hillel again converts people in these unusual circumstances, he says in all these cases, it's a Dafka. He didn't really convert him. He committed to convert him and he taught him till the point that the person accepted and he only converted him once he had reached that threshold where he believed in Torah Shabal Peh. That, of course, takes away some of the sting because otherwise, why is Hillel acting in this way? Another incident where an individual came before Shammai. Convert me on condition that you'll teach me a whole Torah. When I'm standing on one leg, what the Mashiach explains is that means not that you're going to literally teach me the Torah on one leg, but I want to know what are the fundamentals or the core thing, the one thing that all the Torah revolves around. Why don't you teach me that? And that'll be enough. He pushed him out with, with the equivalent of what is a ruler, which is a measure of an amat. The amat binyan is a measure for laborers when they permit to build buildings or structures. The amat binyan is the amat that they measure by how much they're going to commit to make or how many amot they're going to commit to build based on the price that they're giving. And the mashah points out over here that he doesn't throw them out with a chastisement or a crossed manner. Instead, use the Amata Binyan to signal to him that you need a strong foundation. You can't be standing on one foot or one little item and think that that supports everything that the Torah represents. You need a solid foundation in order to be able to understand the Torah. And that's why he uses the Amata Binyan to push him out. Balifne Hillel, he came to Hillel, Gayere, and he converted him. And Amalo, Hillel had to explain to him what was that fundamental idea that he wanted to convey to him. So he says, Dalach Sani, that which you dislike, or things that bother you, you shouldn't do such a thing to your friend. That's the primary, the core of the Torah. The rest is all interpretation, explanation. Go ahead and learn. Rashi over here brings two interpretations, which are interesting. One of which is, Brings the Pesach in Mishle, which says, your friend and the friend of your father do not leave. It's a reference to a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And therefore the Reya in this Pasuk is a reference to a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And that is that, well, that which you don't like your friend to do to you, which is to abandon you or to disregard that which you say, so too you shouldn't do that to your friend, which is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You shouldn't disregard that which he says. That's one way to learn it, that it's reference to Ben Adam Makom. And then Rashi brings Lishna Achrino Chaver Chamamash. It's literally your friend. Kagon, these are halachot or what we other call, otherwise call natural law, like zelag, neva, neuf, rova, mitzvot, whereby they have interactions of ben adam le chavero, just like you wouldn't want this done to you. Don't do it to other people. Now, what's interesting, which is that this is also the basis for later on Rabbi Akiva and Ben Zuma's statements with regards to v'hafta, the reacha, kamocha, being the centerpiece of the most important mitzvah in the Torah. But it's interesting over here that Hillel gives the negative formulation, which is Dalech Sani, that which you hate, the Don't do your friend. Why does he formulate in the negative and not in the positive? 
So the Marshah makes the claim that the Pasuk, or the context of the Pasuk, Vatarecha Kamocha, is in the context of Lotikom Lotitor, not taking revenge. All the statements over there are negative formulations about what you're not supposed to do to others. And therefore he says, Vatarecha Kamocha, maybe the Targum, not the Targum Unkos, the other Targumim that translated in this manner in a negative formulation is because in that context, it's telling you don't do these negative things to other people. And over here it's the same thing, Vatarecha Kamocha is don't do these things that you dislike to your friend. In addition, the Marshah says possibly that Avtarecha Kamocha can't be taken literally because of the fact that we have a principle that Rabbi Kiva states in other places, which is Chayecha Kodem. That when it comes to a choice between your life and the life of your friend, Chayecha Kodem, you come first. So you can't say literally Avtarecha Kamocha because it's not true. You take precedence over your friend. Avtarecha Kamocha has application. Where is that application? That's here. And things that you don't want done to you, you shouldn't do to others. Well, that's why maybe he formulates it in the negative formulation. And then we have a third story. He was walking behind the Beit Midrash and he heard the Malamei Tinokot saying, Speaking about the Kohen Gadol and the making of the Big Day Kuna. Mar Halalo to me. Says, who gets to wear these fine clothing? the Kohen Gadol. Goes to the high priest. Amar Oto Nachri Ba'atzmo Elech Ve'etgeyer Bishvush Yisimuni Kohen Gadol. I'm going to convert so they make me into the Kohen Gadol and I can get wear this clothing. Balifnei Shamai Amar Le'gayreni Amanat Shittisimeni Kohen Gadol. Convert me so that I can become a Kohen Gadol. Dafka Fov Amata Binyan Shabiyadol. Once again with the ruler in his hand he pushes him out. Balifnei Yel Gayrei. Came before Hillel and Hillel converted him. And even though we know, as the Gemara says in Yavamot, that we don't accept the Gerim when they're coming for Shuchan Milachim, when things are ascendant for the Jews, we don't accept Gerim at that time, because we don't think they're converting out of true love of Hashem, rather for ulterior motives. And over here, that was the case by the Big Day Kuhuna. This individual wanted to convert to be a coin Gadol. He was looking for some sort of position of grandeur. Why would you convert an individual in that situation? So the Mashal over here says his statement, as we noted before, that he didn't convert him. He knew that he could, after learning, make him understand this, but he didn't convert him until he got to that understanding, and that he says is because otherwise it doesn't make sense that he was converting him for these ulterior motives. Or you have to say, like Rashi, that Hillel was Sumeich on his capacity or understanding of the human condition, that he understood these individuals could be brought around to convert for the right motives in the end, and therefore he was willing to take such a risk not a risk that we would normally take, or Bati Dinim today would take, but something that Hillel in his time, and with his tremendous anava, was able to do. Can't make you into the Kohen Gadol yet, because you don't know the trappings of royalty. Go look to learn the trappings of royalty, so you know what to do. He went and learnt the Sukim, and learnt the Torah. He got to the Pesach, and says, Vazara Karev, you mat. Any foreigner that enters in and takes or usurps the power of the Kohanim is going to die. So then this individual asks Hillel, about whom is this Pasuk said? Even the great David Melech of Israel, it said about him. This individual then made a logical leap to himself. A naturally born Israel, who are called the children of God, and out of his great love for them, he calls them, my firstborn son, and about them it says, if you're a foreigner, you're not a Kohen, and you usurp the power, or go and enter as a Kohen, you're going to die, this Ger, who isn't a naturally born Israel, who just comes with his staff, and his, and a shepherd's pouch, that he certainly is not deserving or does not have the capacity, ability, or right to go in and be the Kohen Gadol. It's interesting here what the Gemara does. He says he goes back to Gadol. I can't be a Kohen Gadol. And he says, I learned now that Zarei Karev Yumat. seems to be here that it's a veiled criticism of Shammai, that he goes back to Shammai and says, see, I learned. Now I understand that I can't be. You should have told me that. You should have been engaging with me and speaking to me about this. Yet, you just dismissed me out of hand. But look now, I learned, I understand, and now I know why I can't be the Kohen Gadol. And he goes before Hillel, and he converts. And 
You, humble, patient, individual Hillel, you should have lots of blessings on your head. Because you brought me under the wing of a Kodesh Baruch you converted me, and you had me understand slowly what it is that is expected of me. At some point in the future, these three converts coalesced in a single location. The stringent, strict nature of Shemai was going to push us out of the world. And the patience, the humility of Hillel. It's a summary of what we began with, that one should be an Ambatan like Hillel, not a Kabdan like Shemai. You see here in these three examples, Elo was successful at converting these individuals and bringing them even though they had some precarious beginnings. And Shemai, who dismissed them out of hand, would have caused them to never come under Kanfei Ashkina. Snagamar continues, Amresh Lakish, what's meant by the Pasuk in Yeshayahu? Vaya emunat itecha. The faith of your times will be Chosen Yeshuot, the strength of your salvation, Chachmat Vadat, wisdom and understanding, and the Gemara will bring in a second the remainder of the puzzle with Irat Hashem He that the fear of God is that which stores it, that's which should be the treasure of the individual. And the Gemara interprets Emunah Ze Seder Zraim. Emunat is a reference to the Seder Zraim. The Gemara is going to say that all the words in the Pasuk are a reference to the Shisha Sidre Mishnah. And Emunat is Seder Zraim. Rashi over here says the reason is because Hashem trusts in the individual to give their trumot and masrot, which is the theme of Masechet Zraim, is the giving of trumot and masrot, and Hashem puts his trust in individuals to do the right thing and bring their trumot and masrot, which is actually interesting because in the Haftorah for Shabbat HaGadol, over there, Malachi says about Hashem speaking to individuals, he says, Can man steal from God? That you're stealing from me. And you ask, how can you steal from God? That's the Maser and Shuma that you don't give. So you see here that God puts trust in individuals to give their Shumot to Masrot. And if they don't do that, then they are stealing from God, which will become relevant in a minute. Itecha, your times, Zeseder Moed, which are Moadim, comes from the word appointed time, which is that the Moadim come around from time to time. Chosein, which is a reference to your strength. Zeh Seder Nashim is a reference to the Seder dealing with Nashim, as Rashi explains over here, because it's a Lashon of your Shim. Your strength, your offspring, which is brought through a woman, brings you those your Shim, and that's why it's a reference to Seder Nashim. Yeshuot, salvation, Zeh Seder Nizikim. That's a reference to the Seder Nizikim, as Rashi notes over here, because Moshian, Mazir, the Frosh Mehezek, because it saves you from doing damage to others, and from becoming obligated in compensation, because an Ezekiel is not only penalties and repercussions, but it's also preventative measures by which a person can protect themselves from engaging in Ezekiel. Chuchmat zeh seder kodoshim. Chuchmat is a reference to kodoshim. Vidat and understanding is a reference to seder tarot. And as Rashi says here, dat adif mi chuchmat. Dat is on a higher level than chuchmat. And therefore, tarot sits at a higher level than kodoshim. The Marsha has a little bit of an issue with that because in general, Kedusha sits at a higher level than Tahara, but he leaves that little bit in a Tzarechi and it just says that they're following the order of the Pasuk. Tosvot over here says that Umunot is Zez Seder Zraim, which is a more simple interpretation than that which Rashi says over here, which is, A farmer or an individual goes to plant, has to trust in a Kodesh Baruch He's putting seeds in the ground. He trusts that it's going to rain. He trusts that the seeds are going to grow, that there's not going to be plague, famine, all sorts of problems or difficulties that arise. It takes a tremendous amount of trust to plant and to then work the fields and in hope that you will have produce in the end. And that really is dependent on a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and therefore it shows emunah in a Kodesh Baruch Hu. The Marsha brings a third possibility, which is emunah, refers to that which is found in the beginning of Seder's reign, which is brachot, which refers to the mea brachot in the amen that comes with them, and that's what the emunah is a reverence to the amen that comes along with the brachot that are found in Masechet brachot. So this is, through this pasuk, it represents the six Sidre Mishnah. And then it says, despite all of that, Afilu that the only successful way 
to manage this, or the most important treasure that Hashem has is Yirat Hashem, fear of God. And the Gemara will build on that in a second and explain why that is or how that is. They bring a person in to be adjudicated in the final din. They say to him, Did you conduct yourself in a manner that had integrity and honesty in your business dealings? Did you set aside time for the Torah? Were you involved in procreation and creating offspring? Were you anticipating salvation? Did you work in wisdom? And then did you understand one item for the other item? Those are all the questions that they ask. And still the major question or the fundamental question they're going to ask is, In the end, if you had fear of Hashem and you had the proper Yirat Hashem, then that will be a successful outcome to the din. If not, it will not be a successful outcome to the din. Mashal, we have a parable that helps us understand this. The person tells his messenger, Bring me up a core worth of wheat to the Aliyah. He does exactly his bidding. Did you put in them a cob worth of preservative? Rashi over here says, that it's salty earth that helps to preserve the item. He says, no, I didn't do that. It'd be better that you never brought it here. Similarly, doesn't matter all the good chita, all the good things that you bring, it only matters if you have the preservative that goes along with them. Similarly, Yirat Hashem is the most important thing. Without that preservative, no matter how many bountifuls of wheat that you bring up, it's not going to help. And similarly in Shemaim, all these other things only matter in the context of Yirat Hashem. Now, going back to understand this, the simplest way to understand this is that, just like the Pasuk that they interpreted, deals with the six Sidre Mishnah, there are six questions that relate in a similar fashion to those issues, which is that, did you deal with integrity in your business dealings? Now, it could be that, according to the way Rashi explained it before, we had two possibilities. One is that, did you give your trumot to Maserot? And then, would be like the question in Malachi, which says, are you stealing from God? Did you act honestly and give your trumot to Maserot? According to the Baliyat Tosafot, where it says that, did you believe in a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and you planted with that type of emunah, in that case would mean that, did you plant with belief in God? Did you believe there was a Kodesh Baruch Hu that was going to provide for you or not? Yourself or Although the more simple interpretation is Nasata Vinatata did you deal honestly and with integrity? Now honesty and integrity is connected to Emunah and Hashem. Person who believes that Hashem is the provider of Parnasa and provider of all that he has will not cheat because he doesn't think it gains him anything. Because in the end God's going to give him what he deserves. Doesn't matter if he cheats or if he acts honestly. So he may as well act honestly because then he'll get what he thinks God deserves. Person who's cheating doesn't believe that God's really the provider and therefore he thinks he can get more than he deserves. And the same thing could be said about Trumotu Masrod. The person who doesn't give Trumotu Masrod is because believes somehow by withholding those Trumotu Masrod, somehow that's going to enrich himself and he doesn't live up to the trust that God puts in him not to steal, quote unquote, from God and keep the Trumotu Masrod, but rather give them because that will be the thing that enriches him and helps him out, it's seemingly illogical to the individual that he have to give up more in order to get more. And therefore the question is, Nasata v'natata v'emunah. Kavati itim Torah. Rashi over here says an amazing thing. It's a person's compelled to make a living, to provide for themselves. Sheim ain't derecheretz ain't Torah. Without a living, without a parnosa, there's no way you can learn Torah. But the other way around is true too. If a person just gives up their life to making a parnosa, making a living, then Torah is going to go by the wayside. Person has to set aside davar katsuv Person doesn't set aside times to learn, then they'll be drawn into their parnosa, drawn so strongly into that temptation of parnosa that they'll leave the Torah behind. So they need to, at the outset, set out times where they're going to learn Torah to limit the effect their cheretz has in overcoming or overtaking their life. And then asakta bipirya urivya. Did you? Again, involved with Piri Rivya, which we said before was Hussein, offspring, which is about Seder Nashim, is about. The Marsha makes a note here that it doesn't say Kiyamto, 
Did you keep? Did you do Piriyarivya, but rather a sakta? Were you involved with Piriyarivya? And the Marsha claims that it means helping out others, like Yatomini and Yutoma, to get married. Sipita the Yeshua, did you look for salvation? Meaning that if the Torah and a Kodesh Baruch Hu provides salvation, Rashi over here says, Sipita the Yeshua is the Divrei Nevi'im. That which Nevi'im said, that Hashem in the end will bring salvation, did you look forward to that? Did you believe that Hashem was going to bring that salvation to bring the Mashiach? And then Pupelta Bechachma, means that were you involved in matters that were meaningful and wisdom that was meaningful. And then not only did you use what Hashem granted you, but then you extended it. You are gifted with certain talents. Was it enough that you just used those talents? No, you need to You then use those talents to do even more than what you could have done with those natural talents that you had. So that would be the idea behind the Pasuk. The Balea Tosafot ask in another place, and many of the other Mephoshim notice that this seems to be a hierarchy in the questions that they ask you when you get up to the Beit in Shel Shemaim. The first question they ask you is, Nasat v'natata be'emunah. And the next question is, Kavata in the Torah. Because of that, the Bali, the Tazwar in the Gemara and Kiddushin and Sanhedrin asked the following question, which it says that any free Adam ela divrei Torah tchila. The first thing a person is taken to task about when they get out to Shemaim is over divrei Torah. Over here it sounds like the divrei Torah is the second question they ask after Nasat Venatata Bemuna. So Tosvot in Kiddushin suggests that the order of the questions is Nasat Venatata Bemuna, then Kavati in the Torah. The order of the punishment is al divrei Torah first. In the Gemara and Sanhedrin, Toso gives a different answer, which is it depends on the individual. If a person didn't learn at all, then he's brought to task about the Torah in the first part. If a person learned, then the first question is Nasat v'natata ve'emunah, and then only secondarily is it asked, Now, my brother-in-law wants to suggest, although it's not so clear that, that the Mephashim follow this, which is that the Gemara is not trying to give a hierarchy over here, because it's just following the order of the Pasuk. It's not that Nasat v'natat v'emunah comes before Kavat itim Torah because the Pasuk just reads that way. There's emunah, then itacha, chosein shuad v'chokmad v'dat. telling you the nature of the questions, but it's not trying to give you an order or a hierarchy. And the Groh says something interesting along those lines, which is that Rabbah's statement over here is really a continuation of Reish Lakish's statement, which is that the Pasuk, each one of them is connected to Shishay Sidre Mishnah. Nasat v'natate be'emunah, it's not a question about did you deal honestly in business, but Nasat v'natate be'emunah, did you learn Seder Zrayim? And then Kavat itim the Torah, is there where you engaged in Itacha in the Seder Moed? And then Asak Tabiri Rivya, is that you were involved in Seder Nashim? And so each one of them is a question, did you learn? It's one question, which is, did you learn Torah? Just asking about the Shishay Sidre Mishnah, which is somewhat along those lines, which means that there's not a hierarchy here, but really a continuation of that which Reish Lakish said before. So now the Gemara continues and brings down what seemingly is not an agadic statement, but a halachic statement, which is Tanit Debei Rabbi Shmal, Me'arev Adam Kav Chumton Ve'kur Choshesh. Person can mix in a kav worth of this preservative into a kur shel and then sell it at the prices of a kur of tvuah and not consider it to be cheating or ona'ah, because people expect you to put the preservative in there because it helps the shelf life and they expect it to be there. And they want it in there. And therefore they're willing to pay the price, even though the weight or some of the weight is this preservative and not the wheat itself. Unless they will pay wheat prices for the preservative because without it, it won't be able to be shomeret. Even though this is true, luckily also has a Gaidic interpretation with regards to Yerat Hashem. Which is that the Kur Chitin, you need the preservative to give value to the Kur Chitin and people are willing to pay for it. Similarly, Yerat Hashem is essential for the Otsar HaChumah for the ability to have wisdom, and that's what the Mishnah Navot says, Kol irato kodemet then mitkayemet. Just like over here, if they have a preservative, it keeps it intact. So too, the Yirat Hashem keeps the Chochmah intact. Avakoshachachmato, kodemet irato, chachmato eno mitkayemet. Then if you have Chochmah without Ira, that doesn't allow for the Chochmah to be sustained, and that's because Yirat Hashem is fundamental or necessary. Because otherwise the person thinks the Chochmah belongs to them. And then either it's an intellectual pursuit or they become haughty because they think it's all about them and their ability to think and present. And so that's what they need at Hashem to mitigate that and for the person to realize that this is really Chochmah Hashem and Chochmah Torah. And that's their purpose over here. Now the Gemara is going to explain more about that. If you're at Hashem, I'm Rabbi Baravuna. 
Kol adam sheish bo Torah be'ein bo yirat Hashem. Any person has Torah without yirat Hashem, domele gizbar shemasulo maftechot apnimiyot. They gave him the inner keys to the inner chambers. Umaftechot achitzonot lo masulo. But the keys to the outer chambers, they did not give it to him. Ve'ayil, how is he going to get in? The inner chambers, Rashi says here, is a reference to the Torah. Those are the important things, the treasures that are on the inside. And the doorways, or the outer keys, are the ones to Yirat Hashem. And over here, it's Yirat Hashem is a prerequisite to that which takes place afterwards, which is the Torah. Without Yirat Hashem, there is no Chochmah. Without Yirat Hashem, there is no Torah. And that's what Rashi says over here. Im if he does, has Yirei Shemayim, then his Torah causes him to do, and to keep the Torah, to preserve the Torah. But if he doesn't have Yirat Hashem, then his Torah is just like any other subject, like any other intellectual pursuit, and therefore it will not be preserved, it won't have that special status, or that unique effect on the individual, so that it changes the individual. Rabbi Yanai gave a mashal in a different way, which is, Woe is, or it is worthless, the person who does not have a gate, but he makes a frame for the gate. So absent the gate, what's the point of making a frame for the gate? The frame for the gate is the Torah, and the the gate itself is the Yira. Without the gate itself, without the Yira, then the framework to the gate, or the frame of the gate, is worthless. Now, there is a nuanced difference between this, which is that Rabbi Rav Huna clearly sees Yirat Hashem as a prerequisite to the ability to engage in Torah. Whereas Rabbi Yanai seems to indicate that Yirah is something that surrounds or protects the Torah, like a gate, but it's not necessarily a prerequisite. You can build the arch, you can build the frame, but you still need at some point to have the Yirat Hashem in there. And that might refer to different types of Yirat Hashem. There's Yirat Hashem that's needed before one starts to learn, before one engages in learning. There's also Yirat Hashem that one needs to engage in even after they've started to learn Torah. In addition, it's possible to understand Rabbi Bavuna's position, not like Rashi, that the Pnimiim is Yirat Hashem, and the outside doors are the Torah, and you need the Torah to access the Yirat, which is a higher level than the Torah, and therefore he would actually have a fundamental difference with Rabbi Yanai, which is that which is more important. Is it the Yirat or the Torah that is more important? This Gemara over here is the platform from which the Rabbi Chaim Velozhin writes his Nefesh HaChaim, in his strong position against the rise of Hasidut, and this overemphasis on Yirat Hashem and Musar at the expense of Torah. And he explains the Gemara in the following manner. And he uses the halacha of Tanah Debei Rabbi Shmuel before to explain that, which is that Tanah Debei Shmuel says you're allowed to put the preservative into the Tevuah. He says, but if all you collect is preservative, in the end you have nothing. A preservative is only good when it's preserving something. A Otsar is only good if it houses something inside of it. He says, Yirat Hashem is the preservative. Yirat Hashem is the Otsar, is the silo that contains that which is inside of it. But in the end, you need something to put inside the silo. and In the end, you need something that the preservative is preserving. And that's the Torah. So Yirat Hashem is essential, but it's not the primary. It's the way to either facilitate, to protect, to give the proper perspective approach to the Torah, but it's not the Ikar. If you spend all your time on Yirat Hashem and nothing on the Torah, you've misunderstood what the Gemara is suggesting over here. So yes, Yirat Hashem is fundamental, essential, but again, it's only fundamental and essential in preserving the Torah and in housing and storing the Torah. But you need the Torah, which is the main thing, and that's the Pnimi, and that's the thing that we're after in the end. And he uses that as the basis for his explanation as to why focus on Torah the essential side of Yadut is connecting to Akash Baruch through Torah learning and not through the learning of Yirat Hashem and Musar and other ancillary items which are important and fundamental but not the focus or the primary mechanism or medium for reaching Akash Baruch Now the Gemara is going to continue discussing about this primacy of Yirat Hashem. Akash Baruch made his world so that people will fear him. God made the world in order that they will be fearful of him. They were sitting together. Rabbi Yaakov was a big gold that was passing by. One of them says to the other, We should get up for him because he is a man who is Yirat Chet. He has Yirat Hashem. 
Amleidach, the other one says, Nikuv Mikamei the Gavar Bar Orianhu, should stand up for him because he's a great Talmud Chokham. So Amalei, the one who said that he was a Yerei Chait, says to him, Amin Lachana the Gavar Dichil Chatinhu, I tell you that he's Yerat Chait, he is Yerat Hashem, Amart Liyad Bar Orianhu, and then you tell me something that's less than that, that we should stand up for him, it doesn't make any sense. I told you something that's a greater virtue, and now you're telling me something that's of a lower virtue, which seems to indicate here that Yerat Hashem is more important. But once again, you could describe it that Yerat Hashem in the context of someone who is a Talmud Chacham is really important. Someone who just has Yerat Hashem without any Chuchmah to them, then you don't just stand up because they're Yerat Hashem. It's only in the combination of Yerat Hashem and Bar Orion that it's true. But you still need to be a Bar Orion in order for that to be the case that Yerat Chet makes a difference. And he's saying over here that in terms of hierarchy, Yerat Chet really takes precedence or that's more important in terms of giving respect to the individual because then you know that their Torah has really had impact on the individual, and that's very important. And we'll see that in a second with the distinction made between other chokhmat and chokhmat Torah. This time, let's conclude the Rabbi Lazar, who damar, the gvar dachil chatinhu. Let us say that Rabbi Lazar is the one who's of the opinion that being a yirat chait is more important. Dam Rabbi Yochanan Mishum, Rabbi Elazar. It's very unlikely that this is Rabbi Lazar, because Rabbi Yochanan is Rabbi Elazar ben Pedat's Rebbe. And you're speaking about Rabbi Lazar, the Amorah, it wouldn't make any sense that Rabbi Yochanan, his Rebbe, is quoting his student or his Talmud, Rabbi Elazar. Now, Rabbi Elazar is a Talmud chaver of Rabbi Yochanan. He quotes Rabbi Yochanan. He argues on Rabbi Yochanan. But Rabbi Yochanan never quotes Rabbi Elazar. And you can see here on the side that Masorah Shas brings from the Yalkut that it was really Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Shimon, who was a Tana that Rabbi Yochanan was quoting, and that would make more sense. But then the Gemara is assuming because Rabbi Yochanan said it, his Talmud, Rabbi Elazar, also believed in it, that Ein Bovat. Koshbrochu doesn't have in his world, the only thing that he has is Yirat Meshamayim Shnemar. Pesach says in the Parshat Ekev, What does God want from you? That all Hashem wants you to do is to fear Him. That's the only thing God's asking from you, just that one little thing. As the Marshal points out, this is in consonance with the statement of Chazal, that everything is determined by heaven except Yirat Shemaim. Meaning that the only thing that you can do is Yirat Shamayim. That's where you have influence. That's where you have free choice. How you execute, how you do things, what you do with that which you're given, that's the only thing that you have a choice about. And that's why that's the most important thing is Yirat Shamayim. Uchtiv. And it also says in Yov, Yom Adam, Hein Yirat Hashem hi Chochmah. That Yirat Hashem is wisdom. And the says, She came Lashon Yivani, Korin Achat Hein. Because the word for one in Greek is Hein. And that's what it means here. The one thing is Yirat Hashem Yichokhmah. That's the only thing that's Chokhmah is Yirat Hashem. Tistayim, you must conclude that Rabbi Lozer is the one who has that opinion. Now what's interesting over here is that Hain in Greek means one. The grow over here plays on the letters that are used for the word Hain, which are Hay and Nun. He says that if you look at all the unit numbers, which are one through nine, if you add them up together, they add to the tens, which is one plus nine is ten. 2 plus 8 is 10. That works for all numbers, except for 5, which doesn't have a partner. Similarly, when you go to the 10s, all the 10s add up to 100. 10 plus 90 is 100. 20 plus 80 is 100. All of these are the letters of the Aleph Bet and the numerical representations that they have, except for Nun, which doesn't have a partner that adds up. So Nun and Hay are unique. They are the one that doesn't have a partner. They're singular. And that's the same thing over here. Hayn Yirat Hashem. The word Hay and Nun, Hayn, are Yirat Hashem Hi that's one thing to note here. The other thing is probably a contrast between the Chochmah Yivanit, which is very much focused on the wisdom or the intellectual pursuit in of itself, or for the wisdom itself, versus the wisdom of the Torah, which produces Yirat Hashem, or transformational nature of Torah. The learning Torah is not just a subject, it's not just an intellectual pursuit, it's something that influences the individual and changes the individual to the point where there's Yirat Hashem. And that's how you know if someone's really learning Torah properly is if they have Yirat Hashem. Because Yirat Hashem is a product of learning Torah. And if a person's not learning Torah in a way that it influences their behavior and the way that they conduct themselves, then they're chasing Chochmah Yivanit and not learning Torah. And that's what it says over here. Hain Yirat Hashem Yichuchmah. In Judaism, the one thing that's indicative of Chochmah is Yirat Hashem, not the wisdom in of itself. Alright, so now the Gemara seems to jump tracks here and speak of something that's a non-sequitur. Some of them, if Farshim wanted to say that it connects back to what we were saying before, that the Gemara had problems with Kohelet or Stirot in Kohelet, 
And this is also another possible stira in Kohelet that the Gemara is trying to resolve, which is the Pasuk in Kohelet says, Do not be too evil. Don't be too much of a tzaddik. So don't be too bad, but you can be a little bad. That's the implications of the Pasuk. Ella, the explanation is, Mishachal Shum. Somebody eats garlic, and he has bad breath. So now that you have bad breath, you may as well eat more garlic, and have even worse breath. We saw this in the Gemara in Brachot, brought it up with regards to an individual who forgot to say a bracha. Should he then continue to eat without saying a bracha? And the Gemara brought the same mashal. Just because you've done something wrong, or a little thing wrong, she continue to do more things that are problematic. And similarly, that's the explanation of the Pasuk. Just because you did one thing wrong, or you've done a little thing wrong, doesn't mean then that you have carte blanche to just keep doing things wrong. If you did a little wrong, do tshuva. Stop. Don't continue to do those things that are incorrect or those things that are bad. Dorash Rava, Bar Ravula, what is meant in the Pasuk in Tehilim? Ke'ein chartzubot lemotam ubari ulam. That there is no pain in their death. Ubari ulam. And their health or their strength is full of vitality. This is speaking about the Rishayim. And it sounds like the Rishayim, things are going wonderful for them, and it's not understandable in the world of Hashem. Why is something so good for the Rishayim? They die these painless deaths, and they're full of vigor and life and health during their lifetime. It's not enough that they're not fearful or upset about Yom Amitah. Rashi says over here that's no trico, and they're playing on the word Chatzubot. That is a contraction of Charedim Ba'atzavim. The Marsha points out that Charedin is that which is in the future. They're not afraid of Yom Amita. And Atzavim is they're not upset about all the bad deeds they've done before. Ela shlibam barilam ki ulam. But their hearts put them in a state of tranquility like that of the ulam. Rashi says pitchol shul ulam, which is very wide. But said ulam, which is a strong and big structure. But they're very confident in their situation. Now the Gemara quotes from another parakintilim. This is the parakintilim. It's the korach that one says at the end of davening in a Beit Avel. Over there it says, Zedarkam Kesalamo. This is the way of those that are wicked. Kesalamo, their folly is their way. Yodim Rishayim Shedarkam Lamita. The Rishayim know that their end game is death. Ve'eshlam Chelev Al Kislam. And so they have fat around their kidneys. Kidneys were seen as the part of the body or the organ that gives Eitzah advice or directs the individual's behavior. And so having fat on your kidneys means that you feel at ease. You don't feel any sense of being compelled to do anything because you're comfortable with what you have. Maybe you would think the reason that they don't fear death is because they forgot about it. Tamar Lomar, the Pusu continues. This is the Pusu that we just quoted over here. Continues, and their end is in their mouth all the time. They know what's coming. They know they're going to end up in death. And despite that, they're very comfortable with their life. Rashi also points out that the Tupsukim before the Perkintilim says, so that the Pesach beforehand says that their private thoughts are that their houses will continue forever and that their dwelling places will be for generations. So they don't feel any fear. And then continue into this Pesach that we just spread over here, that's the folly of their ways. Despite the fact that they know their end is that they end in death, the Marsha says that you don't have to go back to Tupsukim, you can just go one Pesach before, where it says, Badam Bikar Nevertheless, a person doesn't necessarily lie down in honor or in grace. In the end, he's like an animal that passes away. So, the end, they know the end game, and yet despite that, they live in certain deception that everything's going to continue the way it is, and that they don't have to rectify their ways in order for Kosh Baruch Hu to take care of them. And of course, this is obviously read in the Beit Avel, because even though there's negativity associated with death, we want to take a lesson away from death, and that is what's later on in the Psukim there as well. It's not about the accumulated wealth or the tranquility or the deception a person leads in his life. In the end, it's, it's the quality of that which he did during his lifetime that he's going to take with him. It's the Torah, the mitzvot, the irat Hashem, 
and the legacy that leaves behind, that's what he's going to take with him, not of all these physical and material possessions. And that's what the focus is over here, not to worry about these Rishayim, because in the end, they're going to be stripped of all the things that make them so secure in their position. Now the Gemara goes back to the Mishnah, which we had the, we had the Tanakhama's position, the Mishnah, then you have Rabbi Yossi's opinion, which is Poter Bikulan, and all these things where he worried about the Nair, where he worried about the Shemen, on all those cases, you are Patur, Chutz, Minaptila, over there except for the Wick, because it makes it into a coal, or it makes it into a charred piece. The Gemara wants to understand what is the position of Rabbi Yossi. Gemara already discussed the difference between the position of Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda. That's a machloket about malachash and srichad gufa. When a person does an activity whose outcome or its end product is not similar to the way the malachah was done in Mishkan, that's called malachash and srichad gufa. Rabbi Shimon says about malachash and srichad gufa that it's patur of al-asur, it's patur min l'oraita, but asur mid rabbanan. It's a failure in malachet machshevet, which is a requirement by malachot of Shabbat. And therefore, your patur of al-asur. Rabbi Yehuda, on the other hand, believes that Malach Hashem Tzricha Gufa is considered to be chayav midoraita, because in the end, you carried out the malachah. It may not be for the end product or the same reasoning as the Torah says by the Mishkan, but in essence, you did exactly what was asur midoraita. So now the question is, who does Rabbi Yossi hold like that he comes up with this distinction between ptilot and Nair, and Shemen. So, Keman, Svirle, Ike Rabbi Yehuda, Svirle, feels like Rabbi Yehuda, who says, Melach Shein Tzrichot Gufa is Chayav, Afilu Bahanach Naimeli Chayev. Why isn't he Chayav for all these other things? When he extinguishes the flame, he's extinguishing it to protect the oil, he's extinguishing it to protect the lantern, he's extinguishing it to preserve the Ptila. All those are Melach Shein Tzrichot Gufa. If he thinks you're Chayav for that, not only should he be Chayav by the wick, he should be Chayav for the Nair and the Shemen. Ike Rabbi Shimon Svirle, why is he only patur by Shemin in the Nair? Why isn't he patur by the Ptila? So we're going to have answers in both directions. So this is Rashi goes to the Malachot that we're going to see later on in Paraklag Gadol which is that by Shabbat, in order to be a malachah, it has to be a constructive malachah. The only thing that is asur on Shabbat is melechet machshevet, items that are constructive malachah. So if you have destructive types of malachot, they have to be done in a manner that's destructive, which has constructive purpose. So over here, soter, destroying something is only meaningful if you're destroying in order to rebuild or build something in its place. Korea, ripping something is only amanatlit for. You're ripping it in order then to be able to stitch it back up to make it better or change whatever it is that you want to do there. Simply, mochek, you're erasing amanatlichtob in order to write. All of these, melachot of kilkul, they require a rectification or a positive constructive aspect to them. So similarly over here, over here you're doing kibui. You're extinguishing something. So you're soter, you're ruining something. Amanatlit note. You're trying to do something that's constructive from it. He believes that it's only considered to be constructive if the same destructive act is also the constructive act. If the destructive act precipitates some other constructive act, that's not considered to be a positive or constructive action. And therefore over here, as Rashi explains, when he extinguishes the ptila, then the extinguishing creates the constructive force that he wants. He wants a wick to be preserved. He wants a wick that he can light. So when he extinguishes the ptila, that is the constructive item, which is that he will now have a wick that he can use. When he extinguishes the wick to preserve the oil or to preserve the lantern, the constructive item is that the oil or the lantern itself isn't the extinguishing. The extinguishing stopped the oil from being drained. It stopped the lantern from being ruined, but it's not the extinguishing itself that precipitates a constructive act. Rashi claims from his rebellion, that's because the oil could be used for something else, like salad dressing. Or the lantern could be used for something else. Rashi thinks that's wrong. He says you don't even have to go that far. The oil itself is not the product of the extinguishment. It is a separate entity. And same with the lantern. It's a separate entity from the extinguishment. And even though the extinguishment preserves them, it's a destructive act that is a constructive act in another location or another place or another object. And therefore, it's not considered to be soter. All the paradigm for them is found in the Mishkan. Where do you have the paradigm of Suter? 
stira in the Mishkan is because they used to deconstruct the Mishkan in order to travel with it and then rebuild it in the new location that they went. Over there, when they dismantled the Mishkan, they were doing it to reassemble it in a place that was somewhere else. And that's still called a constructive act. It's different with regards to that. Because it says, by the word of God, they encamped. It's as if they are disassembling it in order to reconstruct it in the same place. And that's because it was all done by the word of Hashem. And therefore, their traveling didn't really bring them to a new place because it was Hashem who was controlling wherever they encamped. And therefore, their encampment was here, encampment was there, was the same encampment, just where Hashem decided they should be encamped. I would have suggested maybe that the idea that there is no makom for Hashem, but Hashem is mkomo shalolam. The whole world is God's place. And so therefore, when you do it on Pi Hashem, you're always in where God is. You're always in the place of God. And therefore, any encampment is in the same place because it's all under the auspices of God. When you're doing this on your own, then you can be in a different location. But when God is the one directing it, God's everywhere, and therefore wherever you land or wherever you encamp, it's still the same location as far as God is concerned. Now, Tosud over here spends time on distinguishing between these different types of constructive acts that Rabbi Yossi over here differentiates between Soter Almanat Livnot Bim Komo versus Soter Almanat Livnot Shalom Bim Komo, that Rabbi Shimon believes that both of those are Pturim, because they're Melacha She'en Tzricha Le'Gufa, Eleim Kain, when you do the stira, it improves the binyan that comes afterwards. So Tosavut says that's a prerequisite for it to be considered constructive according to Rabbi Shimon. can't just be a destructive act that leads to a constructive outcome. It has to be a constructive outcome that's better than the destructive act that took place before. Like over here, where you extinguish the p'tila, you get two things. Number one, you preserve the p'tila, but also now it's singed, which is easier to light the next time. So now you have an improvement in the p'tila. Although he says that that doesn't seem to be true by Soter Almanat Livnot. And he says maybe that's because of the way the paradigms are in the Mishkan. The extinguishing of the Mishkan was used to make the wicks or to make coals. And therefore it was a destructive act that had a more constructive outcome. And therefore that's the demand in order for you to be chayav, according to Rabbi Shimon. Whereas Soter Almanat Livnot was they disassembled the Mishkan and then they rebuilt it or reconstructed it somewhere else. They didn't make it any better in the new location. And therefore, Sotero Manat Livnot doesn't have that requirement, according to Rabbi Shimon, to be an upgrade. It could simply be the same thing that you reconstruct, as long as it's constructive, that the steer that you've done. And then, Tosva notes a problem that we have in the Mishnah later on. The 39 Melachot of Shabbat mentions Mechabeh and mentions Soter, but doesn't condition them on the constructive side. As opposed to the Mishnah that notes that when you Mochek, Amanat Lichtov, or Korea, Amanat Litpor, there it says in both cases the constructive act. And Tosavot says, why do they have the constructive act mentioned and not these, if they also require a constructive act? So Tosavot says the other two have a requirement of Mochek, Amanat Lichtov, Shteotiot, or Korea, Amanat Litpor, Shteotfirot, that the positive action also has a Shi'ur in it. We discuss this in other places, the difference between a chatzi shiur and a chatzi malacha. And over there they need to define the malacha, because the malacha is only if you write two letters. The malacha is only if you stitch two stitches. And therefore it needs to give you that definition of the constructive act, as opposed to kiboy and tira and binyan, which are a cultural. They don't have any shiur to them, and therefore they don't need you to tell us about the constructive side as to what the shiur is. And that's how Tosvot differentiates between them, which lead later on to a machlok in the Rishonim with regards to matir, untying knots. Is matir only a malocha if you're matir al manat likshor? So even though it doesn't write it in the Mishnah, maybe it's similar to mechabeh and soter. Or, because it doesn't mention the Mishnah, maybe it's not considered to be that. And it's a machloket, both in the Rishonim and the poskei alocha, as to whether matir needs to be al manat likshor in order to be chayat. The Gemara then offers the other alternative, which is Rabbi Yochanan Amar Lolam Rabbi Shimon's relay. Rabbi Yochanan Rabbi Shimon. Maishnah Ptila. So then what's unique about Ptila? If it is a melocha, shein tzrichel gufa, it's patur, avalasur, if that's true by Nair and that's true by Shemin, why is it any different by the p'tila? It's a case where it's a wick, which you need to singe in order to make it ready to be lit. It doesn't light well or doesn't hold well when you light it for the first time, so you singe it first, then you extinguish it, and now you have a really good wick to light it with. So there is actually constructive nature to it. It's not really just a melocha, shein tzrichel gufa, because you actually need the malacha in order to make it a lightable wick. Because in this case, even Rabbi Shimon agrees, the kamitake mano. So here he's fixing something, he's creating a new entity. 
Amarava Dekanami, Rava says you can be mendite that out of the Lashona Mishnah Dektanishu Sepecham, that he actively is trying to make it into a charcoaled or singed section. Because it became a pecham shvamina. So you see that he actively is engaging to extinguish it in order to make it into a pecham. He wants to make it. It's not because it's a pecham, now he extinguishes it, because he wants that benefit. No, he intends, at the outset, he was doing this in order to do that. If that's the case, as Rashi says over here, He literally has kavana to make it into a singed item, and this is an intent up front, and since this is an intent, he's carrying out a constructive act with his keyboard from the outset. And that's why Rashi says he's chayav. You can see here that Rabbi Kiva Eger has a note on Rashi saying he doesn't understand why Rashi has to say that. He says, if it was up to me, I would say that you don't have to be mitkavein for it. It has to do with the concept of psikreshe, which is later on in the Masechta, we're going to see that there are two types of psikreshe. Psikreshe is when you have an inevitable action that comes about. If you extinguish a flame, then inevitably you're going to have a singed wick over there. When you chop off the head of the chicken because you want the head of the chicken, the chicken's going to die. That's an inevitable outcome. The question is, is it nechale or no lechale? Do you want that outcome or do you not want that outcome? And the Tosafot later on in the Masechta say that if it's a psigresha, the lo nechale. If it's an inevitable outcome, but you don't want that outcome, for instance, you are doing something in someone else's field and you don't really care about their field, but it turns out that you have an inevitable action. If you're urinating in their field, you're watering their field, but you don't care about their field, that's a psigresha, the lo nechale. You have no interest in it. Tosfa calls that a melacha she'en tzricha de gufa. Patura v'alasur. There is a makhluk between the Bali Tosafot who say it's patura v'alasur and the Oruch who thinks that it's mutar de gamre. According to the Rebbe Kibbeger, as he says, these Bali Tosafot, if you have secretion, the nechale, it's an inevitable outcome that you want, then it becomes a melacha she'en tzricha de gufa. Even though you didn't intend for it, it's automatically assigned to your intent because it's the outcome that you want. And similar here, even if you didn't intend to make it into a wick, literally, and you didn't intend to make it that way, but the outcome is that now you have a wick that's singed, that you want, and you're happy with that outcome, that's enough to consider it to be a malachash at tzrichad gufa. And that's why Rabbi Shimon would say you are chayab in this case. Okay, we're going to stop here by the Mishnah on the bottom of Lamed Aleph Amud Bet.